Good evening and welcome. I'm Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here at the AGO. Before we start, I have to acknowledge our sponsor. BMO Financial Group is the signature partner of the Canadian Collection Program and we're extremely grateful for their help. So I'm extremely delighted to welcome you all here for Gerald McMaster's talk. I, I think the work that he's done in the Canadian galleries with the reinstallation is spectacular. I'm really enjoying it. It's even better than I thought it was going to be. And I think it's, it's courageous work and I think it's the way to go. So here is Gerald's bio. Since 2005, Gerald McMaster has been the curator of Canadian art at the Art Gallery of Ontario where he led his curatorial team in the reinstallation of the Canadian galleries. From 1981 to 2000, Dr. McMaster was curator at the Canadian Museum of Civilization, in charge of exhibitions, acquisitions, and publications of contemporary Indian art. His word. While, it, while with the Canadian Museum of Civilization, he curated some of the most important exhibitions in our history, including Indigena, 1992, Reservation X, 1998, and Edward Poitras, Canadian um, Venice Biennale, 1995. These exhibitions were always at the forefront of establishing a critical and articulate voice for Aboriginal artists in the art world. In 2000, he left Ottawa for Washington to work at the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, where he was both the director's special assistant for Mall Exhibitions, 2002 to 2004, and Deputy Assistant Director for Cultural Resources, 2000-2002. During his tenure at the Smithsonian, he was responsible for design and content of museum's new permanent exhibitions, as well as curating First American Art and New Tribe New York. He has widely published. Dr. McMaster's awards and recognitions include the 2001 ICOM Canada Prize for contributions to national and international museology, the 2005 National Aboriginal Achievement Award, and more recently was given our country's highest honour, the Order of Canada. We're very lucky to have him, Gerald McMaster. Thank you very much, Gillian. Welcome to the Art Gallery of Ontario. I told Gillian earlier today, I Seem, I feel like I'm at a press conference with all these microphones. <laughs> so I'm just going to raise them if you don't mind, okay. Well, um, delighted as I am that you are here today. I hope that uh, we have an interesting discussion today about the Canadian galleries, uh, more properly called the McLean Center for Canadian Art. There's two galleries or two major spaces in the Art Gallery of Ontario dealing with Canadian art. One is the Thompson Canadian Collection, and the other one is the McLean Center for Canadian Art. I'm going to be talking about the latter, okay? But we can talk about the former as well, but I won't have as much to say on it as I will the latter because I've, I have more to do on that one. So let's get started, if you will. Okay, history repeats itself, which may explain why it's so boring. That's the same. <laughs> I think I was once one of these slackers. In the background, we hear the teacher drone out, okay, let's go over chapter seven again at a group of sad sacks fighting to stay awake. History, however, doesn't have to be that boring. The caption reads, history repeats itself. Actually, isn't it true that we repeat history? 
So my question is, can we make history less boring? William Faulkner once said, the past is not dead, it's not even past. If we allow ourselves to think about it this way, for example, by looking at it differently, maybe, just maybe, we'll sit up straight long enough to get something out of it, and then, of course, we can go back to sleep. Here uh, is, well, we are at the entrance of the Canadian wing with Michael Snow's now very iconic walking women, which was done specifically for the Ontario Pavilion at Expo 67 in Montreal. Some of you may actually have seen it. Some of you may remember it. But here it is. It's the, it, of course, graces the entrance into the wing. So you have uh, different choices here. What we call, uh, when you arrive at this space, uh, the space is called, uh, uh, in the local lexicon of the Archaeo Ontario, it's called the hub. So when you arrive at the hub, it's basically a decision-making point. You can either go to your right, which is into the Sarek Gallery of Inuit Art, or if you go straight forward, you can go into the Thompson Canadian Collection, or you turn to the left and you arrive at the McLean Center for Canadian Art. Tonight I'm going to talk about the new McLean Center for Canadian Art by first saying what it is not about, okay? It does not have a strong chronological frame of reference. It is not just about our 250-year history. And it's not just about men. And I could go on, of course. But here is, uh, so what is it all about? Okay, okay, the Canadian, McLean Center of Canada, it's about exploring the rich, and exploring the rich and complex diversity of Canadian art through the ages, incorporating an abundance of stories told by many bold, compelling voices, and presenting art from various perspectives. It's organized thematically under myth, memory and power, demonstrating how artists have sought to understand the com their complex worlds. It interrogates various representations, and in the process, we hope to get across new ways of seeing, thus taking visitors to new levels of self-awareness and understanding. And finally, the public, especially you, many of you who are the local Toronto community, will get to see many sides of Canadian art, with frequently changing exhibitions. Indeed, it is this last point that uh, most signals change. And of course, we've heard change so often this year that I seem to be redundant, but it is not. We thought about this much earlier. <laughs> With the new reinstallation or rehang, of, as some have uh, called it, we wanted to be able to show more of the collection was frequently changing in frequently changing rooms as a way of refreshing or bringing, bringing about new and showing older works into play again. Often donors, whether it's artists or some of you as uh, donors, often complain why we, what we collect we never put on display. Anyhow, uh, we think our rehang is very, very special. So how did we carry out this proposal? First, the Archive of Ontario insisted we recognize the indispensable participation of the visitor to the gallery, you the visitor to the gallery, and thus the viewer of the work, without whom the artwork is simply nothing. It is a dead object. By refocusing on the visitor, we felt the art and thus the space would and should come alive. 
This relationship was laid out in the institution's six guiding principles, and you may hear about these from time to time. They are diversity, relevance, forum, creativity, responsiveness, and transparency. Second, we were wholly aware of the changing times. How? By understanding that the, the diversity and complexity of our time requires many, many voices, as well by interrogating various representations, we maintain that we will uh, get to understand new ways of seeing, which in turn will, make, will take the visitors to new levels of self-awareness and towards a diversity of voices. Third, by constructing the galleries along thematic ideas, enabled us to examine various narratives, often the silent voices, in new ways. And by examining and making public the thematic ideas inherent in the objects, perhaps then many new and distinct voices could be engaged to read the works and thus engender new and relevant connections. As with any new idea or approach, there are bound to be a few criticisms, such as, the lack, as I pointed out earlier, the lack of a chronology or a chronological drift. You may be asking why there's a lack of chronology, especially as it's easily the most, the most privileged and understood framework of any art museum. We know our history to be diverse and complex. So against this background, we can continue to tell, how can we continue to tell a singular narrative? The more we thought about it, the more the team and I thought about it, the more we felt something was missing and needed balancing. At the same time, with the growing mandate of the institution, we posited the temporal nature of permanent exhibitions needed to be broadened in a very, very spatialized way. Our memories or stories, of course, are anchored in diverse material and art objects, so we put the question thus. How can our research into specific works or the space between the works be helpful to our visitors' understanding of the complexity of Canadian art? History allows communities to renew and remember themselves and traditions. Sometimes this has negative situations where there is a resistance to outside influences and thus a negation of their stories. The stories or the histories and the issues hold power, not only for knowing the past, but also placing those who hear them in a much larger context. The stories we want to tell have multiple meanings and values within a community such as this that need to be told. Looking at art objects today through interdisciplinary approaches where there is more than one authority provides new and fresh, fresh perspectives. While chronology it wasn't intended to be the foundational structure for the Canadian wing, we do recognize its ongoing importance. In presenting the historical Canadian collection to the public, our aim is to understand how these works are a, part, are a critical part of the present. How do they live with us and us with them? History is always around us, and we seem to live with it. Thus, reading the past through the lens of the present brings it closer to the first person, bringing life to the work, and by doing so, it allows us to use the collection in interesting ways. This is the second criticism. Someone once said, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. 
As historians who focus on popular memory have insisted, we experience the present through the lens of the past, and we shape our understanding of the past through the lens of the present. In presenting the new Canadian galleries along these lines, we walk a very fine line of criticism called presentism. Of course, looking at the past through the lens of the present is inescapable. There are many attendant issues of this approach that must be acknowledged. Historical examination is, of course, full of contradictions, points of view, and so on. Surely there could have been more ways we could have examined the past. But what we chose was most, the most appropriate for what we eventually settled upon. The discussion and debates were entirely an internal process with our team and, of course, our senior management until we felt all at ease at this particular approach. Unlike the past, why can we not reread history? We can't undo the past. We can, however, rewrite the past and revise it. But, we can't, but it can't be undone. Indeed, history, isn't history nearly always in a state of being undone or recomposed? Isn't this the beauty and the joy and the challenge of writing history? John Christensen said, unlike the past, which is, well, past, history is always in the present, unquote. Today, some of the best and most engaging history is an argument aimed at the heart and soul of the present. George Herbert Mead, American philosopher and social theorist, argues that the historical past insofar as it is capable of being experienced, is transformed by novel events. History is not written on an unchanging scroll. Novelty gives lie to the way of seeing the past. And by virtue of its originality, the novel event cannot be explained or understood in terms of a prior interpretations of the past. The past, which by definition can only exist in the present, changes to conform to novel events. So now, what about our rehang? As I said, it was very, very special. Indeed, rehangs, uh, uh, have some, if some of you have been reading a lot of the art criticisms and a number of magazines over the last several years, have noticed that they've uh, endeared, and, endeared uh, a lot of criticisms. But let me quote to you uh, Kathy Halbrick, the former director of the Walker Arts Center, I believe now she is with the Museum of Modern Art in New York, about this idea of rehangs. She says, rehangs are about re-seeing. She says they're about breaking down old ideas about how and in what context art should be seen. It's both stimulating and clarifying either to create new or abandon old hierarchies, to disrupt preconceived notions of, say, beauty, or fiddle with the drama of the space itself, unquote. So now I want to take you on a tour of the Canadian wing once we uh, go past this particular uh, space here. And uh, we enter the first section. Organized, as I said, uh, around three major themes, the Canadian wing uh, falls under memory, myth, and power. The McLean Center for Canadian Art demonstrates how artists have been key articulators of and sought to understand our complex worlds. And with this, 
we felt was the way to go. So the first thematic zone, as I said, we encounter is the idea of memory. The first gallery is called Ancient Memory. It explores the ways in which memories have been recorded as a means of marking our place, our time, and our events. Some of the following questions that have guided our curatorial thinking in this particular area is how does the past shape the present? And how do we examine the past through the contemporary lens? How have we tried as a society, this society or other societies, how have we tried to erase those cultural memories in other peoples? And how has art uh, used to preserve these memories? So this is the, as you enter this particular space, and you will see a room full of projectile points. These projectile points number a 1,000, and the title of this particular space is a 1,000 points for a 1,000 generations. Here is uh, I and a couple other people uh, actually involved in the in installation of laying out these projectile points. Of course, this was a total team effort, as I remember having uh, spent several days with my team members placing these in, in, in particular orders. But this installation itself was a way for us to indicate that within our country, Canada, we have an 11,000-year visual history, okay? And it is through this particular ubiquitous objects that somehow we were able to easily get that message across, okay? This uh, second uh, work here in the same gallery, of course, is by none other than the uh, recently deceased contemporary artist Norval Morisot and his painting Man Changing in the Thunderbird. It's six panels. It shows the persistent of the ancient memory in the present tense. In this particular gallery, we also show three other major internationally known artists uh, of Aboriginal heritage. In addition to Marisol, Bill Reed, the Haida artist, also uh, deceased. Uh, but more recently, the Inuk, the Inuit artist and filmmaker, Zacharias Kunik, Kunik, who are all now internationally recognized and who've made it their, life's at, uh, their life's work to recover the ancient memory that they felt had been erased. Here is an ancient stone club in the center from the Pacific Northwest that, of course, predates any European contact in Canada. It's one example of many that we have had to borrow from institutions both in Canada and the United States because that is not a territory that the Art Gallery of Ontario is used to going into. So we've had to go borrow many of the objects in other collections. But I'm happy to say that we have started to uh, collect works of First Nations historical material, and I'll show you one object uh, later towards the end of my talk in which we recently purchased, but it is an area that we are certainly getting into. Uh, the other object that you will see here uh, is a small object on your left. Actually, it looks as tall as a real totem pole, doesn't it? But they're about this tall. Of course, I'm talking about the argillite model poles, which uh, indicate that the art form for us uh, um, continued unabated uh, into the present, certainly since the 19th century when they were first produced uh, for tourists in 
uh, in Western Canada. And of course, the pole on your right, the small pole, again, it's a small, very small pole uh, made of ivory by Bill Reed, and it exemplifies, of course, this idea of uh, recovering ancient memory. So the gallery that speaks about ancient memory uh, is one area that we felt was a, a, a considerably important area for the new archaeology of Ontario. So we have this ancient memory, but in many cases, many of you in this uh, room may say, well, it's not part of me. It is about the Aboriginal culture. And I guess what the archaeology of Ontario uh, is uh, not necessarily insistent upon, but it's, it's, it's suggesting that this is our history. This is who we are today. It may not be specifically your history 11,000 years, but it is our history as Canadians and of Canada. So that's what it represents. And this is an, a very, very important, and, uh, important distinction that I think that we've tried to make at the Archive of Ontario. So once you have this uh, ancient memory, this memory that was almost taken away and, and, and subverted and uh, repositioned by these contemporary artists, we also had to think about, well, what about our recent memory, okay? We do have a recent memory, don't we? So from, from here, we move into recent memory. Recent memory is, a, is what we remember as opposed to what historians would recount for us, right? The Sydney Eaton Gallery, which is just uh, uh, the next gallery from this particular gallery, is devoted to Canadian art from the permanent collection, dating from about the 1960s and 70s and presented through the lens of the Coach House Press. Now, <clears throat> uh, I say uh, every time we go on tours of, the, of this particular space, or at least I always say, uh, and I always like to quote my, an old friend of mine, Lucy Lepard, who talks about the 1960s. Uh, she says, if you remember the 1960s, well, you probably weren't there. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm... I'm, I'm uh, I wasn't there because uh, the 70s was more my period, but I, I always like to say, I don't remember that either. <laughs> Just remember those guys at the front, uh, the, the, the little uh, cartoon at the front. Well, that's the way I felt. I was sleeping through most of the 1970s. Anyhow, in, in, in this particular space, in archival terms, we must also ask, what is the relation of the past and the present? And in terms of recent memory, it's about the period in our history that's still within the memory of so many people, especially the baby boomer generation. The collective social memory of this time means that many things, it means many things to many different people and to individuals and groups. It was a time that produced such great ideas as postmodernism, civil rights, feminism, multiculturalism, just to name a few which of course continue to have an impact on our daily lives. The relation of past to present is always about our identity. It tells us who we are and makes us feel better, doesn't it? It's our foundation. Part of it is nostalgia, which could be important to, for viewer participation to fill in the gaps. So what happened during this time locally and globally that had profound impact in the art and cultural world that set the stage for the avant-garde practices of today. In terms of artistic practice, it seemed there was a prof profound breaks with the past, especially in painting, 
where there was so much more experimentation. As well, new media came into being and was used in many, many new and creative ways. In other words, new movement, new ideas, and new spaces opened up many possibilities. So as you enter into the Signet Eaton Gallery, which is about recent memory, we invited a number of artists from the local community and worked with them. And we worked with the Coach House Press, who uh, some of you may, of course, remember some of the publications that came out of there. But Coach House Press was a very significant member of the community. So it was through the Coach House Press, through the relations of some of these artists, that we brought together and asked them to remember, if they could, the 1960s, okay? But often they remembered other artists in, that were their peers. So in this, in, in this image, for example, the local photographer and professor at the Ontario College of Art and Design, Barbara Asman, is remembering the work of Joyce Whelan and the beginnings of the feminist practice. And of course, uh, some of you may not uh, uh, know, but Barbara Asman was born and raised in the United States and came here in the early 70s, I believe, as with a number of other artists. And so, in, in effect, um, they were new Canadians, uh, or repats, as I think they like to call themselves, looking at this particular time in this, in this moment. Uh, California-based sculptor uh, and Canadian artist Michael Hayden, in this instance here, is remembering the visionary work of Les Levine and the creation of disposable art. I thought this was a very, very interesting work in that uh, this work never existed before. It existed only on paper. And when we were designing the exhibits, uh, one of our curators, uh, one of our staff said, hey, we just found this, uh, this uh, uh, Arts Canada magazine, I think it was from about 1968, and here was this article that was, I believe, written by Les himself, in which he actually designed this space on paper, and he says, if anybody ever wants to design the space or to build it, you can. It's free of charge. There's no copyright. So long as you send me a photograph or let me know that you actually have done it. Well, 40 years later, nobody did it except us, and this is the room. So when you go in that space, it's a, it really works today, I think. I think it's a wonderful space in this present tense. But also notice when you go in the gallery, you'll see a small display case of that uh, original article that was in the art magazine. So it is right there. I'm not going to tell you everything in the Signet Eaton Gallery, but uh, in this case, some of you may be remember the, the, the gallerist, Ev Isaacs. In this case, he's remembering many of those artists who came through his gallery. Uh, as well, there's a small display uh, of his Inuit Gallery, because Ev, I believe, was one of the earliest sellers, uh, certainly an art gallerist, to look at Inuit art. So there's a wonderful little display of Inuit art there as well. At the center of this <coughs> installation, and which I don't have a slide of, is the, uh, are a number of walls if you've been in there. And it's the Coach House Press. And what you find there are a number of the uh, printed matter that uh, came out of Coach House Press, such as posters, books, 
gallery invitations, postcards, and art from the period, <clears throat> including Rick Simon's CN Tower Fall Zone, contributed by Rick Simon, Stan Bevington, and David Holinsky. This extensive collection of ephemera includes four monitors with hundreds of images and over 200 pieces displayed, creating a density of imagery that reflects the collaboration of that period. So check it out. It is a, a, a really interesting approach, and uh, we, we are very excited about this area, and I'm sure those of you who do remember the 1960s will certainly remember some of the images that came out of there. And, uh, and of course, Coach House Press is still alive and well and, and working in Toronto and doing all sorts of exciting things. So once we leave this major section of memory, we move into the second major area called myth, okay? So today the many stories, the narratives, the myths fall into the old dualisms of either being true or false, okay? But myth is beyond that. Myth is even beyond science. It embodies in symbol and narrative a vision of reality. Some speak about ancient times that explain why the world is the way it is. These stories function to rational, uh, as rationalizations for the fundamental mysteries of life. Prior to scientific discourse, societies all over the world devised narratives of creation, of resurrection, and complex systems of supernatural beings, each with specific powers and stories about their actions. Throughout the world, myths provide people with explanations, histories, role models, entertainment, and many things that enable them to direct their own actions and understand our own surroundings. Canadian artists from various times and cultures have been inspired by myths, have given them visual form. In many cases, works of art are the only surviving reflections of what particular cultures believed and what they valued. But even, when, uh, but even where written records or oral traditions exist, art adds to our understanding of myths. Many narratives are so compelling that artists have turned to them again and again and again, reinterpreting them from the vantage point of their own experience and their imagination. The sub-themes, there are a number of sub-themes in this particular section. I'll go through them quite quickly. The sub-themes are Axis Mundi, Quest, Origin, Creation, Paradise, the myth and mythology of the Group of Seven, and Constructing Canada. As I said, myth can be either neither true nor false. It is a way that we look at our past. It is what we've... Um, inherited and what we've received from our ancestors and it's a way that we continue to build and look at our world and sometimes we don't think of it in this particular way but we drew upon the inspiration of a number of artists to look at these these ideas so for example when we were developing the exhibition we were thinking of of how artists uh, when we go to art school we start designing uh, uh, these ideas we think in terms of maybe trajectories, okay, the trajectory, for example, of above and below, or from here to there, or in a huge circle, uh, uh, or in a space elsewhere that we can never attain. These were the kind of the foundational 
principles on which we began to develop this particular section. So the first idea, we had to come up with a very, very sexy title of this idea of the up and the down, the heaven and the earth, the outer world, the upper world, and the lower world. And we realized that there's a wonderful uh, Latin world called the axis mundi, okay? the axis of the world, the world's axis. So <clears throat> uh, what you see here is an Anishinaabe uh, two uh, pipe bags on the left juxtaposed with Tom Thompson's west wind. So how did we make sense of the terrestrial and the, uh, the spiritual? What signs do we use to connect and make the connections between heaven and earth and perhaps the underworld? In this particular section, as you enter, you will see not only these two, but just further on your right, you will uh, also see Emily Carr's Indian Church, which, of course, speaks to the Christian views of heaven and earth. The Anishinaabe pouches you see on your left talk about the upper world of the thunder world and the lower world of the Mishapishu. Why did we place it beside Tom Thompson? Well, we felt it was another way, perhaps, that you can look at a similar landscape. This is what Tom Thompson saw when he went into northern Ontario. He saw a late afternoon, uh, kind of an impending storm that is coming about. You can see how the tree kind of lazily flops over, but at the same time has this wonderful action to it. The waves of the water are starting to go like this. You can see the white caps. And the sky has that ominous feel, that gray feel. Well, over the years, of course, we have put this work on display and has become such an iconic image, not only for the Archive of Ontario, but for Canadian art as well. So we wanted to see and find alternative ways of seeing a landscape such as this, of how cultures and how people can come up with these ideas that, that, that are beyond sort of the imagination, these ideas of the upper and lower world. So this is one of the reasons that we thought we would uh, juxtapose these two, because in essence, these two works of art are looking at the same landscape. One sees a kind of the reality of what my eyes see. The other one is more what my mind or my heart sees, okay, it's what the culture sees. So they're both looking at a similar landscape. So here, of course, if you went to somebody in northern Ontario, to a First Nations community, for example, they look at a Tom Thompson West Wind painting and they say, yeah, there's a storm coming. There's a fight going on there between the good and the bad, between the Thunderbird and the Mishapishu. So this is one example of how in the Canadian wing <clears throat> you will begin to see a new way of seeing, perhaps a new approach that we've taken with juxtaposing both familiar works that you've seen before with very unfamiliar works from other collections. The second uh, theme is, of quest, the trajectory of going, leaving home. Of course, we all have an idea of what quest is about. We certainly experience it when we leave home, when we go to university, or we go on a trip with our family, or we go on a life's quest of some, of, of some type. We have a wonderful juxtaposition of two works by Alex Colville, which show, and I don't have, you can see just slightly on the right side here, 
uh, of his wife taking a bath in the 1970s, I believe, and just beside it, uh, we managed to uh, find and borrow his most recent work of his wife, who is now, of course, quite elderly and uh, just coming out of the water after a swim, coming up a ramp. So these two works are beautifully installed and juxtaposed, again, to show another side of this idea of quest, perhaps a quest that we have through life. The third uh, section is called Origin and Creation. Of course, uh, you might recognize Patterson Ewan, Harold Town, the Iskowitz painting. And then this little, uh, it's actually not the original piece, but it's a cardboard cutout of a piece by Manasi Akpeliakpak, who is an uh, Inuit artist. Uh, but in this section, we wanted to talk about origin and creation. Again, how artists are uh, understanding the idea, perhaps, of how life operates in a circle, how, for example, we routinely see uh, spring, summer, fall, winter come again and again and again, or how we in, in religious communities are constantly uh, doing, uh, going on religious uh, retreats, going to church on Sunday, or we're having special ceremonies. We realize that what are we doing? What some religious uh, scholars may say is that we're going back to our origins. We're going back to the beginning of time when the earth was created or the beginning of our religious, that original moment. So this idea of the return, the ever return of origin and creation is practiced not only religiously and spiritually, but articulated in artists in different ways, whether it's through circles uh, such as you see here, or just an examination of that sense of, of how the world could have been created and come about. This, I apologize for the, um, <clears throat> my slides. This is a Gaucher on the left and a Ted Reddick piece at the bottom here. And in this space, they are talking about paradise. And in this case, it's a, a very uh, interesting room as you can see, it's one of our only rooms in which you could actually see from the indoors to the outside. And uh, uh, you will also, when you walk in, will hear some uh, very interesting classical music. But it's intended to put you in a particular spatial moment, okay, a kind of a, where you can have a spiritual, your own spiritual moment. And we think that many people, of course, come to museums and galleries for those uh, as a spiritual pilgrimage. And I think this is one particular space that you're going to enjoy that. Um, <clears throat> most often when we think of paradise, uh, we think of paradise is where we're going to go. In a religious terms, we're going to go elsewhere. But what is uh, paradise on earth? Paradise on earth sometimes might be just your home, your garden, your own little space that you've created because that is my space, that is my paradise, that is where I'm living. Someday when I do die, I will be going to another paradise, but for now, I create paradise on earth as such. So, <clears throat> uh, one, uh, uh, the next space that is within this area of uh, the myth is this section called the myth and mythology of the group of seven. Of course, uh, those of you who are familiar with the collection 
and those of you not familiar with the collection, the group of seven is uh, the central icons of the Archive of Ontario. So we felt we needed to provide a space. We needed to continue to say the group of seven is a destination space. Okay, It is a space that our public is going to want to go or want to come to see. But we also felt, well, how do we fit it into this idea of myth? Well, we felt that uh, we had to ask a couple questions, such as how are we creating and perpetuating as, 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 as a gallery, institutionally, commercially, uh, by making books, by selling uh, postcards, by having little cups, or publicly just by attending and coming here, as I said, as a destination, how are we perpetuating the myth and the idea of the Group of Seven? So this is the central idea that is in this space. So did the Group of Seven reflect things as they were or as they saw them through their own lenses? Does the Group of Seven represent your Canada? These are the questions that we ask in this particular space. Through these artists who painted cityscapes, portraits, and abstracts, they're best known, for their, of course, for their landscapes, which is in this exhibition, um, and which have become symbols for Canada. Through exhibitions, publications, and reproductions, a mythology has developed around the group as artists explorers depicting the pristine and unclaimed wilderness that we know of as Canada. So on this particular wall here is what we call the sketch wall. Many of the works, of course, by the group and some of their uh, contemporaries. This is a slide, or this is a work from the group's uh, beginnings at the old art gallery of Toronto. This is a photograph from 1920. Uh, but the Art Gallery of Ontario, of course, has played a key role in establishing the legacy of the group of seven and contributing to their status, status as Canadian art icons. Around the rooms, uh, there are paintings that, uh, that when you go into this particular space, and I'll show you this next uh, uh, slide. So around the room, there are paintings that were included in the Group of Seven's early exhibitions at the Art Gallery of Ontario. You'll also notice uh, uh, one work in particular, but if you go into this space, you will see in this area these colored bands, okay? These dark gray bands, as you see there. We call them interventions. They're slightly darker in area. And in this particular uh, instance here is a work by Emily Carr. Basically, what we wanted to say these were the contemporaries of the Group of Seven. They were basically their peers. Uh, but they didn't necessarily share a similar nationalist ideology as them, but rather they came in contact with the group in some way or another. The final space in the myth section here is uh, a space that we call Constructing Canada. And so the idea, again, of myth is the constructing of, of how we view, not only how we view ourselves, but also when people come to Canada and leave and go back to their own countries, sometimes they take a little bit of Canada with them either as a memory or as an object souvenir, okay? And so from their vantage point, 
they are also constructing a myth of Canada, of what I visited, okay? So how do we construct our own views of ourselves? How do we represent ourselves to ourselves? How do we represent ourselves to others? And of course, this is the fundamental nature of art galleries, is the representations of ourselves to ourselves or ourselves to others, okay? And so in, in an instance like this, for example, uh, on the far left, uh, you will recall at the beginning I showed these small uh, argillite poles. Well, we have this wonderful collection of about 50-odd uh, of these poles. And we wanted to present them as a way uh, to show this is the kind of work that uh, tourists were beginning to, to take with them when they went on uh, trips up from Vancouver to Alaska. Along the way, the boats and the ships would stop in at Haida Gwaii, and of course the artists were starting to uh, perceive a way to make uh, money to, to extend their economy by making these small works of art. And so they made hundreds and thousands of these works, and so we wanted to show that uh, this, and these were the kinds of works that people uh, would pick up on their way home. In addition, we've also uh, um, wanted to present uh, uh, the works of, um, of, of a local space, a space that we're all quite familiar, and a space that most people who come to Toronto and Canada say, and when they arrive at the airport in Toronto, they say, Where's, how do I get to Niagara Falls? <laughs> so right away, it's, it's, it's the perception of our country, and of course, you know, when we, when we think of Niagara Falls, our eyes roll back, and, you know, and, and, but people are really excited about it. But Niagara Falls has always been there. It has always been a very much a part of our identity and what people perceive to be of Canada. So part of the construction of who we are in Ontario and perhaps Toronto is the Niagara Falls. So we have this wonderful uh, display of various paintings and works on paper, uh, even in books, you will see uh, the Niagara Falls as, as part of that construction. Of course, we have also in Quebec, on the Quebec site, Montmorency Falls, who uh, not quite as famous as Niagara Falls, but certainly has been an interesting part where people, of course, have gathered and have, have gone to see quite regularly. So we leave uh, this particular section now and take you to the next section, the final section, which is power. And uh, here in this section, we have three big ideas, power dynamics in the art world, established and questioning authority, and ways of seeing. So in power, art functions as a recorder and catalyst for reflection and dialogue about the dynamics of power that affect human lives. This installation encourages visitor exploration and personalization into various aspects of power, using the artworks as catalysts, as provocations, and as points of creative reflection. Power struggles and relations are universal, complex, and dynamic. They exist across all social, cultural, and political lines, and historically they have been documented and reflected through art. What powers were and are at play in constructing art and reality? All right. Some of you may remember this particular space. 
Uh, it is fondly known as the Salon. And of course, uh, uh, the Salon was the, uh, one of the original spaces that you may recall when you came to the Archive of Ontario and to the Canadian wing. But we felt that we needed to fix it, okay, to rehang, as it were, in a new way in which it had to say something about the idea of power. So the idea, of course, the central idea was that, that power dynamics exist in the art world. Well, that isn't such a big revelation, is it? <laughs> Certainly, it exists today and existed in the past. So the influence of European models uh, was without question. The power structure and annual exhibits of new art societies um, uh, uh, that were imitated here in Canada, imita imitated those abroad. And of course, the idea of the Salon in its original uh, structure and intent was in Europe and were annual exhibitions that were produced uh, for artists and artists, of course, uh, sent in their works and they were judged by their peers and sometimes by a group of judges. And there were, of course, artists who made it and other artists who didn't. Other artists were creating works that fit often within the paradigms of the time and other artists who just didn't quite produce works. Now, what was interesting about this time, of course, those that were creating works that fit within the structures and paradigms of the moment, of course, were hung in these galleries as such and the works that were often judged or deemed as the works of the moment were often hung at this line, a site, the sight line, the eye level as it were. And then of course you start to see that artworks were hung above and others below. Okay. At this moment when the salons of course in Paris uh, were being uh, hosted annually, as I said there were a number of artists who of course would contribute works to the exhibitions and they were denied. They said, oh, that's not good or that, that just doesn't fit. Well, uh, as it turned out, those artists that were being denied, they thought, well, we're good enough, you know. Uh, when they, when they, they felt they were being denied entry into these exhibitions, of course, complained. And in, in one, I think in the one instance, the, a number of these artists complained to Napoleon III, who made an effort and contributed a space uh, which was then called the Salon des Refuse. Okay, it was sort of the, this gallery on the side, this other space, uh, artists that were uh, not part of this main space here. Well, as it turned out, the uh, Salon des Refuse started to host many of the main artists that we now know today as many of the avant-garde artists of the late 19th century. And of course, as soon as that happened, and as soon as uh, it, it, it hit with a vengeance, the art world completely shifted itself. So you had this academic salon style of artists disappear almost overnight, being replaced by these avant-garde artists of the late 19th and early 20th century. Of course, now that is history. Well, for us, the history, we wanted to maintain that history. We wanted to make sure and ensure that we had some sense of the kinds of works that existed in Canada. And so we felt that our country Canada, which was of course uh, uh, created uh, in 1867, 
we wanted to say that as a developing country, we too were developing our art. We too were developing our art societies. We too were developing and could be seen at any level internationally. Our artists were also being, uh, being educated abroad and then coming back. So in a, in a, as we were designing this particular space, we felt we needed to look at that idea, those struggles that existed in the, uh, in the art world. We also wanted to say a number of things, as I said, how the country has been, had been developing, how art could, uh, was developing from about the 18, uh, around 1867 to about 1919. So when you look in this space, you will see that chronology of hang from 1867. You go around the room in this particular direction. And you also will note here that the works on the left side uh, are hung much closer together. And as you come, uh, well, you can't really tell, can you? But you can tell when you go in the gallery. But you will notice that we started to hang them on a much looser, much looser hang to show that uh, within a few years, of course, the idea of modernity was starting to affect the way art galleries were hanging their works and, of course, affecting the kinds of art that was being created. We also wanted to say that during this time that many, many of the artists who were denied representation happened to be women, okay? Even though women were a very much a significant part of the art world, women, of course, were involved in the societies, the art societies. They were involved in the construction of art museums, such as the Art Gallery of Ontario. They were very much a part of the, the, the environment of the, art, of, the, of the art world. But often they were denied access into these important displays. So in a nod to the artists who were denied those representations, we felt it important for us to say, this is the new art gallery volunteer. This is a way for us to show more uh, women artists during this time. So on this side of the wall, for example, uh, over 50% of the artists on this wall are, uh, and works are by women. Not just of women, but by women. Okay. So that is, I think, a significant part of this space. So, so there you have the, um, the, the old salon itself. And, um, and what it looks like today, okay? What was interesting about this particular space as well, some of you, uh, I remember when I first came and uh, I was telling people that uh, we were changing the salon, they go, oh no, you're gonna take the salon down? Or uh, if you talk to people in the street, or you know, people who talk to the Archaeology of Ontario, and you talk to them about the salon, the first thing that they often mentioned was, oh, you mean that red room? <laughs> you know, uh, and somehow that was what jumped out at everybody. It was the, the red, you may recall, right? It's sort of the color of well, that red there, for example. It was very, a, a brilliant color red. And that's what stuck out in people's minds. So that's not why we changed the color. We felt if we had to go back and try to do research on what the original salons were, uh, not only the way that they were hung, but also what was the color like. We did research and, of course, we found that this approximate the color of, of what may have been the
the salon of its day. Okay, slightly subdued color. Um, I think it was called colonial red or something like that when we were checking the paint chips. But we also felt that somehow the red no longer speaks as it used to, okay? That in this case, what you are reminded now, of course, are the paintings. And that's the significant part of how we address this particular space. It is now the paintings that now gently come out and kind of sit there as you see the way they are. Now, of course, we've been uh, a number of art museums who uh, frequently borrow from the Art Gallery of Ontario have also come in and with their pen and paper, they're going, ah, I could borrow that one, you know. And already we've been asked, and I know my staff are sort of pulling their hair out and going, dang, we should figure out a way not to loan those because there's going to be a big blank on the wall. Well, of course, we can fill the blanks on the wall, but it's a way to uh, show that this may be a, 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 an early example of open storage. <laughs> Of course, here's some uh, close-up uh, examples of uh, some of the works that you will see. Of course, some of them are quite well known. I'm going to have you uh, try to remember the one work on the upper right there, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. <clears throat> so we leave the salon, and we go into another space, the next space uh, that we call, the sub-theme is called Establishing Questioning Power, in which... Uh, we ask what power relations existed that have helped shape our identity in Canada, how, has, uh, how is authority established, and who establishes it, how have we challenged authority in and through art. So in this particular room, I have a few slides, and the first one is uh, a work by Joe Talarunli in, in the foreground, and a work um, by O'Brien, and in the background, and I just can't remember the view of York, the artist there on the right. But the idea here was to show how power is established, okay, and how do societies establish power. Well, we wanted to show a way in which early, uh, to show not only just a way of showing our older collection, but of showing our old collection in new ways. And this is one way that we came up with. So, for example, a way in which power was established uh, through the country Canada, of course, was the colonization of Canada, the colonization of Canada through European powers. And, of course, many of the countries in Europe that were going around the world were commanding the seas, and were, uh, whether it's France or Britain, Holland, uh, Spain, uh, Italy, and countries as such mainly did so through the power of these huge ships, of course, establishing harbors, establishing cities uh, at the edge of, of, these, of the continent of North and South America. So we wanted to juxtapose that and ask a similar question of First Nations. How did they maintain and establish their own power relationships? Well, they established their power through the waters, through the lakes, and through the rivers of Canada. And so in, in this instance, we have this small installation of a Joe Tallarunley uh, uh, boat. And just beside it, we have a couple small works, beautiful pieces. Unfortunately, I don't have an image of that, of, of kayaks, okay? So in this instance, the juxtaposition of how we look at power and how power was commanded. So in this instance here, um, we have the works of uh, Hamel, um, 
showing Mr. and Mrs. Dorian in Quebec. And uh, when we think of how uh, the, the rich, the famous, and the powerful uh, establish their own sense of, of that, um, their identity, often it was done through the power of art, through the commissioning of art, through the commissioning of portraits such as these. So when we go to museums and galleries, we will see hundreds and hundreds of these portraits. So we wanted to suggest how are other ways that power is established. Well, that's why we put these three works, as you can see, by Haida artists from the Haida Gwaii. And in, their, in this instance, we felt that power was similarly established in communities by very rich and powerful chiefs who would commission great works of art of masks and jewelry and, and totem poles and you name it and host these very, very elaborate ceremonies called potlatches. It was a way for them to establish that position within the community. So again, the juxtapositions and the telling of the ideas of how power is, is expressed in different societies. This is a, a fuller view of that particular gallery. And uh, what you, the two artists that you will see in this particular space is the Kent Monkman on the left and uh, the Plamondon painting the, called The Passenger Pigeon Hunt on the right. Uh, these two works aren't supposed to be, are not, I shouldn't say they aren't, uh, but there was another image on, on your right here in which the Plamondon is juxtaposed against. So it's not really the juxtaposition of the Monkman with the, uh, with that work on the right by Plamondon. Um, <clears throat> what I wanted to do was to talk just a little bit about the Kent Monkman. As I said, a number of ways and factors in which we try to uh, bring a new way of looking at the collection was not only by just juxtapositioning um, uh, works you've never seen before with uh, other works, but we also felt uh, one way to do that was to bring in contemporary art. So throughout the galleries, you'll see, you might see a Rodney Graham, You'll see later a uh, Rebecca Belmore, and you'll, in this instance, you'll see a Kent Monkman. This was a special work that was commissioned. We worked with the contemporary department uh, to commission Kent Monkman. And what's interesting is when you walk into this space, um, and on many occasions I've walked in or walked through, and I notice people, a lot of young people especially, but a lot of other people as well, walk into the space, they see all the old stuff that I just showed you. And then they sort of take a double look. You've done this, right? You've probably gone through the gallery and you've looked at this and you go, what the hell is this? What's it doing here? And of course, those of you who know Kent Monkman, of course, are quite familiar with his tricksterish attitude, right? His, his, his way of doing things. This uh, work is called The Academy. And it is based on a work, if you've gone down to the European galleries on the second floor, there is work uh, there by Nicolas André Monsiau, and it's called Zeus Choosing His Models, okay? And of course, Zeus is looking at female models. Well, Kent Monkman, the female, is out of the question. You know, his is all about males. <laughs> so as you can see here, uh, it's looking at the Leocon, the famous uh, Vatican sculpture, but there are many, many other references uh, to the archaeology of Ontario here, as I said. Uh, if you look closely, 
uh, you will see many, many of these references uh, in paintings from um, um, William Henry Bolton, whose portrait hangs just a stone's throw from, from uh, this painting here. You could see him on your right with his pipe, uh, and he's kind of playing with this, uh, the, the guy woman, right? Played by Kent Monkman. Um, and you can see uh, a, the, the Indian guy sitting below there, and that is a, a, a reflection of uh, Benjamin, uh, uh, Benjamin West's painting of the death of General Wolfe. You will see the artist Norval Morisot, the late Norval Morisot, sitting here. You see Kent Monkman here on the far right, okay? And Kent Monkman is wearing this coat that also appears in the gallery. So throughout, you will see these references about. You'll also see, and you unfortunately can't see in this painting here, there, 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 there are two things you'll see. One is the uh, coyote. Coyote, of course, is a trickster at the lower right, just by the two little wing the, after the bath from the Paul Peel painting, right, which is I just sh told earlier. But you also see between the legs of these figures, these small, tiny figures running throughout. There's guys chasing buffalo and all that. And you go, what in the hell is that? Well, as I was talking with a colleague of mine, we were talking about this painting as a, as a way that... Uh, uh, of expressing a dream. It was like you're in a dream because this is such an unreal, such a surreal world that is happening here. It can only happen in a dream. Well, this is Kent Monkman's view. And of course, Kent uh, draws inspiration from the 19th century. And we felt it was just a, a perfect opportunity for us to put this work in the gallery. So if you haven't seen it yet, check it out. Spend lots of time, and I know the gallery guides. It's it's like, you, and a number of gallery guides are here. I know it's almost the place they like to take everybody. You know, it's right away. That's we got to go right there. People beeline to this painting. Anyhow, it's uh, it's an interesting work. We can certainly talk more about it. Um, okay, the final section is uh, uh, the sub theme. We call it ways of seeing. And often, uh, when we think of ways of seeing, um, we think in terms, in critical terms today, or in terms of the idea of the gaze. The gaze, of course, is a particular way in which uh, one sees another. Often, it is through a particular lens, okay? It could be a lens of gender. It could be a lens of racism. It could be a lens of, of, of it's lenses of otherness, okay? And in this particular space, we wanted to establish that idea of how do people see one another. So we felt, okay, uh, uh, First Nations were always being looked at by artists such as uh, uh, Cornelius Craighoff or Paul Kane uh, or Morris or George, uh, Paul Kane, as you can see up there, other artists who came to North America and were looking at Native peoples and, of course, painting them in their own particular lens, okay? So this is the common view that we often see. But what you don't often see, of course, are how did First Nations themselves see Europeans? What kind of language did they use in looking at uh, Europeans? 
Well, it's a very interesting play when you think that indeed we do look at each other through these lenses, whether we, we're looking at each other, whether we're looking at art. Our cells are always mediated by some kind of screen, as some of you who have been taking uh, a lot of critical theory, particularly the works of Jacques Lacan and others, will, of course, recognize this idea of the screen and the gaze upon the other. So check that out for those of you who are familiar in that. So in this instance, we wanted to set this up. Now, what I wanted to say earlier, as I alluded to, the archive of Ontario is only now beginning to purchase major works of First Nations historical. And the work on your right is the Sea Captain. It is about 18 inches high. It is made of argillite, and it is a spectacular little work. The face here is made out of ivory, and it's beautifully carved. And argillite is a particular stone that uh, is only found on the Queen Charlotte Islands in British Columbia. And um, uh, a number of years ago, a lot of the artists who were quarrying this particular stone felt, uh, well, there must be an easier way to get this stone out of the ground. So I think they used dynamite. <laughs> and that shouldn't have been a material uh, that they should have used because in dynamiting the space, of course, they shattered you know, a lot and created fissures in the stone. And of course, much of the argillite today that you'll know is going to be quite small. Well, a lot of the older argillite pieces, such as this one, you will find it very, very large. So we've got about three or four pieces in this particular space that are made of these huge hunks of argillite, but beautifully, beautifully done. We purchased this piece, um, and when we presented this piece, uh, for purchase to our committee, the Canadian Curatorial Committee, for purchase last summer. Uh, one of the arguments that they said, if we're going to purchase these great works of art, uh, and we can't just go out and, and, and purchase all sorts of stuff, we've got to purchase the giraffe in the zoo. And I'm scratching my head, a giraffe in the zoo. So what's that? Well, I guess it's the piece that you are going to go see. I think the Monkman is a giraffe in the zoo for contemporary art, but it is these older works that, that are magnificent works that, that are one of a kind, that are very, very special, that are out there that we have to go after and to purchase. And this was our giraffe in the zoo. And of course, when the committee saw this, when everybody saw it, and I would agree, I, well, I would hope it, that you would agree when you see it, it is indeed a magnificent work of art. So my final slide is, of course, Rebecca Belmore. And uh, the piece uh, that you will see in the back is uh, a painting by Plamondon. You'll recall that I mentioned Plamondon in the passenger pigeon painting. This is Plamondon's view of uh, an artist that worked with him. The artist's name is Zachary Vincent. And Zachary Vincent was a Huron Indian. And just beside, and you can't see it in this frame, but just behind the dress, there is an actual photograph of Zachary Vincent. And, uh, but here, Plamondon uh, painted him. Plamondon also uh, gave lessons, painting lessons to uh, Vincent. And a number of the Vincent paintings are in Montreal, and I can't think of if they're anywhere else, but uh, 
Vincent did a lot of self-portraits. And uh, it's unfortunate that we have this painting of, uh, by Plamondon of Vincent, but I don't think any exists of the other way around. It would have been just a perfect <laughs> way of how people look at each other. <clears throat> but here is, of course, as I said, uh, Rebecca Belmore's piece. And uh, it's called Rising the Occasion. It was just on display at, uh, of her work, her, a kind of a mini retrospective of her work last summer at the Vancouver Art Gallery, uh, an exhibition which, which went by the same name of uh, Rising to the Occasion. And this particular work, again, uh, sits at the end of the hallway as if you, if you entered the salon and looked down the hallway, you see this as a focal point at the other end. And it was another example of how we wanted to bring uh, contemporary art into these spaces and to be able to enliven them, to be able to say, look at these spaces in a different way. And I think it is a work, a very powerful work, that really challenges, again, how we look at others and how we look at art. And in this instance, of course, Belmore was, uh, did this work in the late 80s, uh, at the time of the arrival, uh, at the time of the wedding of the Duke and Duchess of York, and of course they came to Thunder Bay, I believe in 1988. They flew into Thunder Bay, uh, were flown up the river in a helicopter, and it let, let off on the river, and, it, and then the Duke and Duchess were put in a canoe, and they came canoeing into the town or city of Thunder Bay. Of course, all the press were there. Now, a number of women in the local community were there and wanted to, I don't know if it was a subtle protest of this that was going on. And so 12 of them got together and created this series called the, the 12 Angry Crinolins, right? <laughs> and, and, and each one of them, and they wore these, and they were on the news. And, if you, and, and just beside uh, this installation, you will uh, see an interview with uh, Rebecca. And we have some footage, of some rare, very rare footage of that, of that uh, in, uh, the mock dancing, I guess, of the 12 angry crinolines in the city. So it's a wonderful work. It has many, many layers and discussions about the crown, the, the British crown, the monarchy, uh, and Canada. And, of course, it's wonderfully situated. And, of course, this wonderful beaver, uh, 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 what do you call that? Bustle. Yeah, that's right, a bustle. And a beaver dam, right? A beaver bustle, beaver dam. Okay. So in conclusion, then, the public... Uh, especially you, the local community, I hope we'll get to see this collection in new ways. And, <clears throat> and also I think that you will get to see familiar works. And um, what, over the years, we hope that you will be able to see many of these works and many of these uh, shows in changing exhibitions. Many of you who have come to the Archive of Ontario, and we hope you will come again, we want you to come back because, not just to see the works again, but because we want to be presenting new exhibitions within these spaces. So that, for example, in this particular space, as I say, the ways of seeing, it's how ethnicities look at each other. The other idea that we're working on right now is how men and women look at each other, how the artist looks at it, his, and I use that his in a, in a male perspective, his model, okay, as a way of how is that, that power relationship showing. There are frequently uh, other spaces, uh, I should say, there are other spaces that we'd like to frequently change. So do come back again and again, 
uh, because uh, we feel that you're going to be seeing new works. We're going to be taking down new works, old works, and putting up new works. Through uh, thematic ideas, as I said, we hope that you've arrived at this collection and are going to be seeing it in fresh and new ways, such as First Nations aesthetics or a greater awareness of the contribution of Canadian women. And that we feel that there isn't, because of our ever-growing and complex nation we call Canada and our ever-growing and complex collection, that we've been able to give you and give our future generations a new ways to address Canadian art. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for your time. <laughs> Thank you, Gerald. That was absolutely wonderful. I mean, certainly from my point of view, working in education, working in those galleries, it's so much easier to enter in now. When we did the chronological art historical hang that sort of assumed that you had to have some knowledge or that we had knowledge to impart on you the blank canvas, now it's open. It's, 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 there are more questions than answers, which is just how it should be. So thank you very much, Gerald. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you.